Hello, friends. Welcome to the show. Greg Kokel, your host, and I'm very glad you're with me. Um, I, I have something I want to share with you as I start the show out today. It's something I'm going to read, and it's a speech somebody else gave. But it's one of those things that, for me, was so um, compelling, so touching, so um, so so bold, so uh, so filled with integrity that I I wanted to just share it with you. Now I heard it on the internet first, and um, it. it I'm not even sure the right way to characterize this, but kind of, it gave me chills uh, in the best sense of the word. I was so invigorated by what I heard, the noble courage that was expressed by a um, a, a uh, let's see, I'm, I'm trying now. I'm looking for the, the, all the information here. Uh, Father Calvin Robinson, Anglican priest, giving a speech at the Oxford Union, which is a debate club or debate society founded in 1843. It's been around for a long time. And apparently, this particular speech, which took place on the 2nd of February uh, this year, was about the issue of same-sex marriage. And what's curious about this is the every individual, let me just see here, maybe not, um, was there were two on one side of a debate regarding same-sex marriage and two on the other side, and this was about same-sex marriage being supported uh, or rather conf- affirmed in the church. That would be the Anglican Church. So the Oxford Union hosted a debate, and the resolve is this house supports same-sex marriage in the church. Thursday, 2 February. And there were two respondents on each side, and I'm going to read the response of Father Calvin Robinson of the Anglican Church, and it's a transcript of the entire presentation. Uh, I don't think it'll take that long to read it. It only took me about eight minutes to watch it, but I was I was transfixed. It isn't that this piece is so articulate. It isn't like I was spellbound by the cleverness. I was I was captured by the clarity and the courage by the 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 clarity that the, that um Calvin Robinson had as a Christian man of the cloth frankly it doesn't have to be man of the cloth as a Christian regardless of his occupation and his understanding of scripture and of church history as it touches this issue. And uh, the piece that I'm going to read is uh, a little bit longer than what I heard, uh, maybe three or four minutes into the presentation is where the recording I saw on YouTube picked it up, maybe a little bit longer. 
But I thought, well, since I have the whole thing here, I might as well read the whole thing so you have you have the benefit of his entire remarks. And frankly, it doesn't require any kind of editorial res- response by me. I can't improve on, as I said, the clarity nor the courage that was represented here in this uh, presentation. All right? Um, the cover letter simply says, and I get this from uh, Dr. Robinson's website, um, he writes, the, below is the transcript of my speech at the Oxford Union debate on the Feast of the Presentation of the Lord in opposition against Quote, the House supports same-sex marriage in the Church. Uh, Dr. Ian Paul and I—now, I'm not sure if Dr. Ian Paul was an uh, Anglican priest or not. Probably not. Nevertheless, he was with Calvin Robinson, Father Robinson, against the Bishop of Buckingham and the Bishop of Dudley and the Bishop of Worcester. So the ones who were speaking in support of the Resolve the House supports same-sex marriage in the Church were all bishops of the Anglican Church. Hmm. Just so you know. Um, I'll tell you the results of the debate, how the vote fared when I'm done reading this section, but I'm just going to jump in with Calvin Robinson's remarks. Thank you for the invitation. It's a genuine pleasure to speak here tonight, and I'm happy to see that the Oxford Union is still able to stand up for diversity of thought and opinion and defend free speech even in the stifling atmosphere of 21st century academia. Well done. I struggled with this one. I've not slept much all week. I don't get stage fright. I don't get nervous when I go on TV, and I'm used to public speaking. I've already done the Cambridge Union and Durham Union in the past couple of months with no problems whatsoever, but there is something different about this one that has been causing me real anxiety. Someone kindly lent, uh, sent me Luke 12, 11 and 12, and here he's quoting from that passage, and when they bring you before synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. But why the anxiety? We are up against the authorities, three bishops from the established church. That means either I am wrong, and Christians have been teaching incorrectly on marriage for 2,000 years, or we have church leaders attempting to drag the Church into apostasy. The consequences are severe. This debate is not just happening within this chamber. The House of Bishops is debating this very topic as we speak. There's a growing number of vocal bishops who want to change the Church's teaching on marriage, the result being the spiritual neglect of Anglicans up and down the country. I may have trained at the last remaining sound Anglican seminary in the country, just up the road at St. Stephen's House, but I'm only a newbie 
deacon. Perhaps I'm wrong on this, so let's consult people far wiser than me, starting with the Church Fathers. St. Thomas Aquinas, in his Summa Theologica, quite clearly identifies matrimony as being between one man and one woman, beneficial for begetting of children, and for the good of offspring, for both educational and developmental purposes, necessary for the perfection of the community and for the worship of God. And in that paragraph from Thomas, a couple of these lines are in quotations taken directly from the Summa. St. Paul describes marriage as, therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh, in which he is mirroring the language of Genesis, where God tells man and wife to be fruitful and multiply. Both Aquinas and Paul refer to matrimony as a sacrament, a holy mystery in which one man and one woman are joined together in conjugal union with the potential to be blessed by the grace of God with children to start a family for the worship of God. People will argue, we know more about sexuality now than we did then. Maybe so. But are you then suggesting God knew less than we do now? For either all of Scripture is God-breathed, or it isn't. Either we believe Christ, or we don't. Let's refer to another source, the Book of Common Prayer, one of the Anglican formularies, an authority of liturgy, and a catechism in the Anglican Church. The prayer book lists three ordained reasons for matrimony, and here is a citation from the prayer book. First, it was ordained for the procreation of children to be brought up in the fear and nature of the Lord and to praise to the praise of his holy name. I think that's supposed to be nurture of the Lord. Secondly, it was ordained for a remedy against sin and to avoid fornication, that such persons as have not the gift of continency might marry and keep themselves undefiled members of Christ's body. Thirdly, it was ordained for the mutual society, help, and comfort that the one ought to have of the other, both in prosperity and adversity. Then he says, if we look at the wider church, the catechism of the Catholic Church defines matrimony as, and here's the citation from the Catholic Catechism, the matrimonial covenant by which a man and a woman establish between themselves a partnership of the whole of life is by its nature ordered toward the good of the spouses and the procreation and education of offspring. This covenant between baptized persons have been raised, has been raised by Christ the Lord to the dignity of a sacrament. And then he cites, this is referred to as marriage in God's plan. Now he continues, as we, uh, are we looking, he asks, to alter the catechism of just the Anglican Church? Or should the Catholic Church get with the times too? 2,000 years of Christian doctrine, 4,000 years of Jewish doctrine cannot be altered at the whim of a few liberal bishops. What is God-ordained cannot be adjusted to suit our liberal progressive worldviews. Marriage is heterosexual and monogamous and should be open to the possibility of children. The Bible backs all of this up. It's very clear throughout on this matter. Marriage is between one man and one woman for the purpose of procreation. Sex outside of marriage is a sin. That is the same for heterosexuals as it is for homosexuals. Although the Bible is also very clear that same-sex sexual relations are abhorrent. 
And before some smart aleck starts asking me if I'm wearing mixed fabrics, there is a difference between moral laws and ceremonial laws. Christ came to fulfill the old laws. Both the issues of marriage and homosexuality are addressed in the New Testament, in Paul's epistles, but also in the Gospels. Jesus talks of marriage in Mark and Matthew, both in the context of heterosexual union. So, my question to the bishops would be, do we not believe in the authority of the Scriptures anymore? Can we pick and choose which parts of the gospel we adhere to? The church is Christ's bride. Jesus is described as the bridegroom so that we may know how he relates to us. Two grooms would be pointless. Christ is already in union with the Father and the Holy Spirit. It is us he is inviting in. Two brides are what we're looking at here. The church is attempting to marry itself and leave Christ out of the picture. We are talking directly about undermining God's plan as he has revealed it to us. We are replacing his authority with our own. If marriage is no longer between one man and one woman, are we open to the idea of polygamy? We disregard the heterosexual aspect. Why not the monogamous aspect, too, if love is love? Who is to say three men in a relationship is not more loving than two? And I'm sure someone will echo those dreaded words tonight, love is love. This is about marriage, the sacrament of holy matrimony, not directly about love. Too many people who utter those words have a confused understanding of love. Agape, love in a biblical context, divine love, is a sacrificial love. It's not lustful. People often conflate sex with love. This is very disingenuous. Then, of course, atheists often parrot the words, God is love, again, without any understanding. Yes, God is love, and he sets the terms, not us. Let me just say it again, because this might be missed. Yes, God is love, and he sets the terms, not us. Another one we'll hear plenty of is inclusivity. Shouldn't the church be more inclusive? Again, it's a play on words people use to virtue signal, to appear good rather than being good. The church should absolutely be inclusive. Christ spent time with tax collectors and prostitutes, but it is they who went away changed, not he. We are fallen, and therefore we are all sinners. The church is open to sinners. That is its purpose, but it should not encourage people to continue sinning. Our duty as clerics is to help lead people to Christ, to lead them away from sin, not to embrace and affirm sin. I know many LGB people who live lives in Christ, abstaining from sexual gratification to be closer to God. It is not easy, and perhaps not fair, but it is right, and it is good these people are being let down. I have had people crying, saying, I could have got married. I did what the church taught was right, and now the church is saying it it was wrong all along. As Christians, we are called to be in the world, but not of the world. The trap we have fallen into with this debate is looking at the church through the eyes of the world around us rather than through his kingdom. In the secular world, we all have equality in law. People can enter civil partnerships or even gay marriage outside the church, and that is their prerogative. However, 
the faith is inherently discriminatory. God is discriminatory. He set conditions on us entering his heavenly kingdom. It is not a free-for-all. Turn away from sin, repent, and follow Christ. And I want to specify, it is sin that is the problem, not the sinner. Every single person is loved by God, and God forgives us of our depravity, but we have to turn away from our sins and turn toward Him. It seems the panel opposite me has forgotten to separate the sin from the sinner. One can denounce sin whilst welcoming the sinner. So, as I wrap up, my message to the proposing side is, do not lead people astray. Do not be the wolves in sheep's clothing or the false teachers the Bible warns us about. Remember your obligation to defend the faith. Stop teaching about diversity, inclusion, and equality. Get back to teaching about redemption and salvation. This is spiritual neglect. Help people by telling them the truth. Be kind to them by supporting them through their struggles and reminding them Christ suffers with them. And be compassionate by leading them to Christ when the world tries to lead them away from Him. The church is imploding. The faithful masses have stopped turning up on Sundays. We are seeing the most rapid decline of Christianity in this country that we may have ever seen. Do not accelerate this with heresy. You do not have the authority to bless sin. When I hear the Bishop of London on record saying these new prayers will mean priests can bless same-sex relationships, some of which will be sexual in nature, I hear the devil at work. Bishops are promoting the idea of sacramental sodomy. Let them be anathema. Repent. And to the rest of you, I have no doubt some of you will consider me a bigot, a homophobe, but I'm neither of those things. I am simply a follower of Christ, a Christian. We are naturally countercultural. And if the so called liberals were truly diverse and tolerant, they would embrace us just as they embrace everyone else. There's a growing Christophobic attitude around this public debate and an ugly level of hypocrisy. We rarely see people hold Muslims and people of other faiths to the expectations they hold us Christians to. Who is calling for Islam to embrace gay marriage? Who is calling for the Quran to be updated to modern norms? Yeah, I thought not. It is at the same time patronizing to people of others' faiths and intolerant towards Christians. Shame. But in the words of St. Athanasius of Alexandria, if the world is against the truth, then I am against the world. Wow. Now I have to say, I, in reading it, I did not do it justice, uh, because partly because I don't have a British accent like he does. Uh, you need to see it for yourself. Very easy, Father Calvin Robinson. Just go to YouTube and just type in Calvin Robinson, the debate at the Oxford Union on same-sex marriage or some such search phrase. You'll get it and watch it.
he does a much better job than I did. Uh, incidentally, if you're interested in what the vote was of the people who watched the debate, he does get a summary on his website. He writes, suffice it to say, we lost the debate 186 for 41 against. I would like to thank those 41 sound students at Oxford who braved the lion's den. It must be a very lonely place for them. Please do get in touch if you ever need support. Hmm. What a good man. What a noble man. What a faithful Christian man. Willing to speak clearly with his opponents, men of the cloth, present there on the other side, and he says, do not lead the church into apostasy. Do not be sheep in wolves' clothing. Shame on you. Would that there were a multitude of voices like this man. Gracious, kind, respectful, but completely to the point regarding the issue at hand, mincing no words, making the truth clear, powerful. Let's take a, a break, and we'll return here in a few moments at Stand to Reason. I'll get to your calls. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Alan, Tim, John, and I, Robbie Lashua, are available both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule us today. We can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues and science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read our bios and learn more about the topics we cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, John, or me, Robbie, today. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And Red Pen Logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, Red Pen Logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking. And we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic. And subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. 
right, friends. Uh, Amy has informed me that she has linked to that uh, speech uh, in the show notes. Uh, by the way, is it the entire speech you linked to, or this? The yes, the whole thing, because I initially heard just this last half, which was gosh, so powerful. Um, but there's the whole thing, and certainly worth it to listen to it. And uh, and obviously, obviously, he does a much better job giving his own speech than I did at reading his speech. And um, and I felt myself, in a sense, getting a little bit of an annoyed and giving a different kind of more forceful, aggressive inflection to some of the statements that than than he gave. It was very, very balanced. And as you look at the comments, which I did, a few of them, even not one non-believer said, you know, I, I don't believe in this stuff, and I'm not, you know, I'm not a Christian, and I'm, I'm, I think he was an atheist, but he said, I thought this man did a great job. And he gave a very fair characterization, and I didn't have any sense of bigotry from him or homophobia or whatever, which are the standard uh, attempts to disqualify somebody's view by calling them a name. Ad hominem, it's an informal fallacy. Uh, by the way, just a reminder, our last reality of this season, which started in September, October, November, then February, March, April, our last one will be in Augusta, Georgia. That's our southeastern event, and uh, that's going to be April 21st and 22nd. This has been a great event. I've seen it, actually, I've seen it five times plus a dress rehearsal. So I've seen it six times, and I, I still am not <laughs> tired of it. It's fabulous. Uh, so I encourage you to go to realityapologetics.com. Remember, uh, we have Jay Warner Wallace. We have J Jason Jimenez. We have Mary Jo Sharp. We have our whole team there uh, for the Saturday night I'm sorry, the Friday night presentation, the hosts of that evening, uh, Alan Schliemann and Tim Barnett, and they're doing a very special thing called the Friday night reality show. It's like a talk show and for the whole evening with different guests and commercials and the whole thing. And it's just it's just great. It's just great. So um, be sure to sign up at realityapologetics.com. Just a reminder, Alan Schliemann is going to be speaking April 14th and 15th at Redeemer Bible Church in Spotsylvania, Virginia. And uh, Tim Barnett will be at Mount Airy Bible Church in uh, Mount Airy, Maryland, on Saturday and Sunday, April 29th and 30th. Um, he'll also be in uh, Calvary Chapel, Olympia, Washington, on uh, May 3rd. Um, Amy Hall will be doing a live Q&A on STR's Facebook on Wednesday, May 3rd, so that's about a month. Uh, but I will be speaking—let me see if this is up here. It should be up here, but I actually don't see it. When we do the event on April 21st and 22nd, the next day, which is April 23rd, I will be at a church in North Carolina, and I don't see the details on here, but hmm, 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 how'd that get left out? And uh, it's it's <laughs> somewhere in North Carolina. I will be speaking on something on the 23rd of April. So if you are, you know, in the environments and would like to maybe attend, um, uh, go to our website, str.org, and find the speaker schedule, and you get the details there. All right? All right, time to go to Trevor in Wisconsin. And Trevor, have you called before? Uh, no, I have not. Oh, okay, because when I get a call from Wisconsin— 
I ask, where in Wisconsin are you? And some people say, well, I've only called like four times and you ask me the same thing every time. So anyway, you haven't. So now I don't know where you're from. Where in Wisconsin are you, Trevor? I'm in Menominee. Menominee. Oh, that's like northeast, right? Yes. Yeah. Very good smallmouth bass fishing on that river, the Menominee River. Are you a fisherman? Uh, I can be at sometimes, yes. Once in a while, huh? Okay. In six weeks, no, five weeks. Is that what I told you, Amy? In five weeks, five weeks and tomorrow, I'll be flying into Rhinelander, which you probably know where that is. And uh, we have a place up there in uh, close by, and I'll be there for a while. <laughs> so anyway. Oh, that's awesome. I, I I also spent my first, almost first five years of my life on a farm in Anago. Uh And so my dad was a farmer. And that's, uh, so I've got a strong emotional connection to the state of Wisconsin. I love it, especially if there's no snow on the ground, which is not the case now. But uh, hopefully you got a it's warming a trend coming up. No snow. Say again? It's a great place when there's no snow. Yeah, that's right. I called one of my buddies up there, and he said, uh, right now we got five feet of snow off the highway where the plows have plowed because there's been a lot of snow recently. But I checked the uh, the weather schedule, and you got a, a, a warming week coming up. So maybe that'll clear some of the snow and start melting the ice in the lake so everything's clear when I get up there in May. Hope so. So what's, your, what's on your mind, Trevor? So, um, I don't know. I'm a 17-year-old guy, and I just keep seeing, like, my generation or, like, my age group just falling and just falling down in this temptation of, like, the LGBTQ mostly. Yes. Uh-huh. And like, just falling into this, this sinful world. And I was wondering, how is how do I, as I go to youth group and I go everywhere, how am I supposed to respond to those teachings and how do I help others kind of stray away from that and how do I respond to the false prophets that teach for it so uh, are you suggesting that in your youth group in your church there is a kind of gay affirming environment is that what you're saying no but there's um there was a conference that I went to and um some people that ended up going were actually part of the LGBTQ oh I see and I I like they the conference didn't affirm with it, but they still ended up going, and I found it kind of surprising because, well, why would you go to a place that doesn't support you? But nonetheless, yeah. Well, unless they were giving them a chance to make their case, just out of fairness, here you get both sides. But it does seem yeah. when you have LGBT affirming speakers on the dais, and I presume that was the case with this conference. Is that right? No. Uh, did you say yes? No, it was going. It was going against the LGBTQ. It was what? I'm sorry. It was going against the LGBTQ. Oh, I see. Okay, so, so uh, well, that's a good sign that there are people who are willing to stand up. And I don't know how much you caught my opening commentary, which wasn't really a commentary; I was just reading a speech from a uh, a minister in England from the Anglican Church speaking out clearly against affirming same-sex marriage in the church, and for all the right reasons. But he was very courageous in calling a spade a spade. I think this is a great example of how we as Christians ought to be uh, addressing this issue. And uh, if you 
if you uh, didn't hear what I had to say or most of it or whatever, um, I think you came on board when I was right in the middle of the commentary. Um, when you listen to the podcast, when it comes through, there is a link that Amy put in the show notes that will allow you to go there. And you, the reason I want to encourage you to do this is if the question is, how do we deal with this? My response is you deal with it the way Calvin Robinson did dealt with it. That is, you speak graciously but clearly in in a no-nonsense way about what God has planned, purposed for not just His people, but for all people, but especially His people. And what I mean by that is, it's for all people, but His own people, of all people, ought to obey what He says. But here was this debate, and on the opposite side of the debate were three members of the bishops of the Anglican Church that were arguing in favor of affirming same-sex marriage in the church, not just in the community, the culture, but in the church itself. And what what Calvin was uh, was doing, Robinson was doing, was calling these men. It was interesting the way he worded his piece. He was, in some cases, addressing these men calling them away from heresy, away from apostasy, not to be wolves in sheep's clothing, but to obey Christ. You know, never mind the the history of the Church and Christian leaders for the last 2,000 years and Jewish leaders for a 1,000 years before that, but Christ himself has weighed in on this, and this is God's Word. And his point to his Christian brothers— and I'm just using the word a little bit broadly here. We're just presuming they're Christian, or certainly representing Christianity. Either the Scriptures are God's Word, or they are not. And in his piece, he identified for a couple of possible pushbacks. Well, we know more about homosexuality now than people did back then. Well, we know more about it, he said. But are you saying God didn't know back then what we know now? I mean, that's crazy. So in this particular case, he is speaking very directly to people who identify as Christians and identify, in some sense, the Bible as God's Word. And if the Bible isn't God's Word, by what authority do they even call themselves Christians? You know, because if they're followers of Jesus, it's got to be a Jesus of somewhere. What Jesus are they following? If it's the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John— well, that is a particular Jesus who had particular beliefs, and they, he's not on their side. So what this amounts to in terms of the pushback, and I'm, I'm glad to hear you call with concern. I know you have two issues. you got false prophets, too, but you've got these apostate Christians who seem to be advancing immoral causes within the Christian community. And this is where people like those at the conference that you went to, and I don't mean just the public speakers, but I mean individuals, too, like yourself, when there's opportunity in in the venues they're given. Speakers have a large venue. Individuals have smaller venues. You know, they're friends. A venue, you know, the place where they can have a di- make a difference and where they can speak at. Um, we are to speak the truth against the error. And do it in a gracious way. And uh, on this particular issue, um, Trevor, th- this is not like 
hard to figure out. It isn't like um, this is a gray issue and we don't really know what the Bible teaches. It does not say one positive word about homosexuality or, or, or fornication or adultery or bestiality, all prohibited by the Bible. And these are all sexual activities that a person has with someone other than his or her heterosexual spouse. Used to be, I just had to say spouse, but now people are confused even about who can be a spouse. That was the nature of this debate. No, God has nothing good to say about it. He ordained one type of relationship in marriage and one type of sexuality. And Jesus affirmed it in Matthew chapter 12, uh, 19. Is that right? Yeah, Matthew 19. One man with one woman becoming one flesh for one lifetime. That's Jesus' formula. So, what it's going to take. It's going to take people like me, who've got a, a big, you know, bully pulpit, you know, right here, and the other place I get to speak, and and people like you, Trevor, and others listening, who have a very small bully pulpit, that is, wherever the Lord gives them an opportunity to communicate the truth. But the tr- we have to do it in a gracious way, and it has to be done in a principled way. In other words, we need to be able to make the case from the Scripture that this is not affirmed. And, of course, Standard Reason has a lot of materials to help do that. But um, that's the way to deal with this issue, and I, I don't know of any other way. It's a matter of biblical persuasion of those people who claim to be Bible and Christ followers. And if they're not going to follow the Bible, then what does it mean to say that they follow Christ? So, I mean, that, that's, that's half of your question, but let me ask at this moment, so far, I know you want to ask about prophets too, but of false prophets, does that make sense to you? Yes, that does. The, best, the important thing to do is get educated on the biblical reasons and also get educated on the pushback challenges that you're going to hear from people who are gay-affirming, but think that's fine with the Bible, and then they, they have their things. There is a, uh, a piece that Alan Schleeman and I wrote probably seven or eight years ago, and it had to do with—it addressed the so-called Reformation Project, which is a uh, theologically gay-affirming enterprise from people who identify as Christians but are pro-gay. And what Alan and I did in that piece, and it's two issues of Solid Ground back-to-back, is uh, we—actually, Alan went to their conference and got all their materials, and then uh, we address each one of the claims that they make um, with this kind of new theological approach to show that their approach is not sound biblically. And so it might be helpful for you to have um, something like that at your disposal, but it's free on the internet, and it, I think it's called. Hmm, Amy, I don't know. Maybe you could help me with this. Is it called "Not This Reformation" or something like that? The Reformation Project response that Alan and I wrote in a solid ground. I think it's called "Not." Uh, she's looking it up right now, and she'll tell me in a moment. But oh, the, a Reformation the Church doesn't need. Okay, so this is my fault, Trevor. I named the article with a title that's hard to remember. That's always a big mistake. <laughs> okay, so um, she's looking it up right now. Is that it? A Reformation the Church does not need. Okay, good. So 
You can find this at str.org, and this will give you content, biblical responses to the charges or challenges that people have raised, saying that we misunderstand the Scriptures, they understand it better, and the culture back then, and uh, the, the kind of homosexuality that is being prohibited in Scripture is not the kind of homosexuality that they are practicing. Okay, so that's, that's part of it. Just knowing what Scripture says and how to respond to these, what turn out to be very shallow and, and unsupportable, contrary views about the Scripture's statements and teaching on homosexuality. But you had another concern about false prophets, right? Yes. Did you have someone in mind in um, particular? No, just in general. I just, I'm seeing more people talking about that LGBTQ is affirming and Jesus will still let you go to heaven even if you are part of that. But that's not true. It literally, it states in the Bible so the people you're talking about with that group we were just talking about, the false prophets, these are people who are promoting false doctrine, particularly with regards to sexuality. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, okay. Uh, there's one other thing I want to recommend, and this is 2023. So 2021, uh, I think it was the November issue of Solid Ground. So every other month I write an article or someone on my team helps me with that. And uh, we send it out to people who receive our stuff. Do you receive our stuff or no? Uh, I do. Okay, good. So you probably have received it uh, if you're if you if you're on board with us at the time. But you can go back and uh, check it out online if you don't have it handy. And the the title of this article is called "The Legend of the Social Justice Jesus." Now, the reason that I suggest this is because of something you commented about a few moments ago, and I think I heard you right, you know, Jesus being loving and accepting and all that other stuff, you know. And so if we're really following Jesus, we ought to be supportive and encouraging of of, of same-sex relationships and all of that, because that's the loving thing to do. And what I, uh, what I, what I uh, uh, had as a goal to accomplish in that article um, the legend of the social justice Jesus, is to make clear what Jesus, according to Jesus, what he did not come to do and what he did come to do. And I think there's a complete distortion on this particular issue um, in, in as people talk about Jesus, you know, casually. They don't know what they're talking about because they haven't read Jesus and even people who are good Christians sometimes make statements, well, he came to campaign for the poor and the disenfranchised and stuff like that, um, but he, he still was a, you know, he still observed the law. So um, it turns out that this isn't, had any, this had nothing to do with the reason that Jesus came. What I'm trying to do is give a very clear picture according to Jesus and according to those people who spoke for him. And when I, I mean those who spoke for him, I mean like the angels, Gabriel, who spoke for him, and John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, when he's prophesying what he said about John the Baptist and what John the Baptist said about Jesus, and in all of these authoritative individuals in the Gospels, what did they say about Jesus? That is very different from what the public is saying about Jesus now. So I, I was thinking that article might help you have a clear picture of why Jesus came 
and why he didn't come. Jesus wasn't this easy, easy, easy peasy, mamby pamby, love everybody kind of guy. This guy spoke hard, he lived hard, and he got a lot of people angry at him. He got himself killed, for goodness sake, but he was willing to do so because of standing for the truth. Um, so this characterization of Jesus being loving and accepting of everybody is there is no there is there is no um, support for that in the text. Jesus was loving and accepting of those who came to him with a repentant heart. Didn't matter whether they're rich or poor. It didn't matter whether they're powerful or not powerful. He chastised the the the, the poor as much as he chastised the rich. I mean, here's all these people that coming after he fed the 5,000, they wanted another free meal. Read about it in John chapter 6. He said, you're just coming to get a free meal. Don't hunger after the bread which perishes. Hunger after the bread that does not perish. I am the bread of life. You know, that's the famous bread of life discourse. Anyway, the point I'm making is you get a lot of pushback from people who do not do not know what Jesus said about his own purposes. They hear what Jesus is all about from other people in the culture, and then they distort Jesus, and they make him an ally of their immoral causes. Um, So I just wanted you to be aware of that. Does that help? Yes, it does. Thank you. Okay, buddy. And uh, I hope the sun comes out for you pretty soon, Trevor. Oh, yeah, sure do. So do I. (laughs) Okay, take care. Thanks for the call. Yeah, you too. All right. Bye-bye now. All right. Let's do a quick break, and uh, we'll come back and for another call from Colorado. What if I'm wrong? Have you ever asked yourself that question? There are times when we feel confident about our convictions, but there are other times, if we're being honest, when we encounter doubts that leave us wondering if we got it all wrong. This has caused many to deconstruct their faith. If you can't give a why to your faith, you won't be able to give a why not to your doubts. In other words, if you don't have a Christianity anchored in what's true, you will always be at the mercy of your doubts. That's why we're excited to announce this year's Reality Conference. Our theme is Seek and You Will Find. We will equip students to navigate their doubts by seeking answers to their toughest questions. Because when you seek answers, you find truth. It's time to examine the foundations of our faith because a strong faith requires a strong foundation. Join us at one of this year's Reality Student Apologetics Conferences. For more information, visit realityapologetics.com. You know, if you've gained anything from listening to Stand to Reason, I'd really be thrilled to hear from you. I love to take your questions, of course, but I also want your feedback. So here's what you can do. Head over to iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. That kind of thing really helps us to get the word out so more ambassadors for Christ can find the show and become equipped to stand confidently. And you never know, I might just give you a shout out on the air to show you my appreciation for your positive review. I value you as a faithful listener. I look forward to reading what you think about the show. Thanks. All right, let's go to... uh, You just changed something. Is it still Kevin in Colorado? All right. Hello, Kevin in Colorado. 
Oh, I hey, see. Greg. Hey, hey. Thanks, thanks for taking my call. That's Easy okay. partner here. Uh, oh. love, your, love your work. Thank you, and um, thank you for your support and encouragement. You're welcome. That's really great. The least I could do. And so we have uh, time for your question on time. Excellent. <laughs> uh, so one of my favorite topics uh, to talk about, but I'm not an expert in it. But I, I listened to I listened to your podcast from a couple of weeks ago uh, on this, a couple of shows ago, mm-hmm. and I was recalling when I listened to William Lane Craig's talk on this. I think I did get free from you guys many, many, many years ago. Oh, that's right. It, <laughs> yeah. we, yes, we distributed it. Was, it. To me, it was one of the most elegant talks oh, that yeah. I'd ever heard. It was so well done, and it, very persuasive, too, about God's relationship yeah. to time. I had two questions on your comments, because I, I don't remember exactly what Craig said at, at this point in time. But okay. um, you, you had said there's no good reason to accept the A theory of time. And the pushback I generally get... No, the B theory. There's no good reason to accept the B theory. Remember, B for bad, right. Yep, I got it. (laughs) The B theory of time. But the pushback I get when I say something like that is that, well, Einstein is the reason to believe the B theory. And what would be the reason? I I need more than a name. Well, yeah. (laughs) The whole theory of relativity and, and, you know, all that's based on this notion that time is a fourth dimension that can be traversed. Well, if time can be traversed, that means time is passing. And that's the A theory, not the B theory. In the well, B I guess theory... I mean, go ahead. I guess I mean you can go back in time, in theory. You can, you can traverse it like a dimension. Isn't that the B well, theory, the dimensional no, no, aspect of it? No, the, the B theory is the idea that, uh, that time, there, that, that uh, there is no temporal becoming. In other words, things are not happening. Yeah. You don't the the awareness that we have that time is passing is an illusion. That's okay. the B theory. There is no temporal becoming. There are no tensed facts. There's no okay. past and present. There are just a series of things that are fixed. It's like the you know the block theory b for block right okay and the best characterization comes from in my view comes from uh cs lewis who i think was mistaken on this but he gave a, a a great uh characterization of god's relationship to time in mere christianity and then he took history as it were of all the events of the universe and history whatever as being like a book and if you think yep. of a book so any you've got a, a novel there, just I mean whatever book you have, let's just gone with the wind, okay? Now notice there there are there are only there are only um, relationships, logical relationships of before and after. There is not any temporal relationships before and after because no time is passing. The book is sitting there in front of you. Nothing's happening. No character is is becoming un something else and going through these things, you just flip the pages. You can flip forward and backwards, and you could look at different slices of a character's uh, 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 experience, but of course experience, I mean simply what the words describe take place, and you could you could re- you could read that a hundred times. You could read yeah. it backwards. You could read the back and then the front, and so there are no temporal relationships in a book, because nothing is actually happening. All the words yeah. just sit there, and all the facts of the story just sit there. There is a, you know, a before and after, so you have before the Civil War and during the Civil War and after Civil War, but those are logical relationships, not temporal ones. 
okay, because there's no yeah. time in the book, um, you know, uh, what was that book I said? Uh, the Civil War book. Was the title? Yeah, I don't remember the title. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, um, Gone with the Wind. So there's, okay. and so that's the B theory. Okay. But that means no, our experience of time is is an illusion because characters in the book do not experience the passage of time. Right. What a character is is the full sense of whatever from the beginning of the book to the end of their existence, all kind of together. So you can't take one page out of the book and say this is the whole of the individual person that we're we've been reading about. This is just yeah. a slice in the larger block. But it seems to okay. me that I am myself fully and completely at this point in time. And I don't have yeah. I don't sustain my identity by adding up everything in the past and everything that's in the future, theoretically, yeah. to make a me. Yeah, I agree. I'm definitely an A theory person, but I, okay, so I'm going to need to restudy the B theory a little bit. Yeah. Uh, the second thing that I remember Craig saying that that uh, I thought you didn't mention in the in the previous call, which I think is the most fantastic part of Craig's talk, mm -hmm. is I thought I thought I remember him saying that he did actually create time at or around the Big Bang, and that the cool thing there was that um, before God created, let's say, the Big Bang, uh, he was outside of time in this sort of arguably superior state, mm -hmm. and he decided to create time and descend into it with us mm -hmm. as his first act of love towards us, in some sense, his first sacrifice towards us was to enter time and from that point on uh, live with us in time. Yes, that's right. And even the language in time, it descend down that you use, yeah. we have to that understand that these are just temporal. figurative, right? Because and a lot of people think, oh, he's in time, they think of it like a box, and now you're constraining him. Actually, if yeah. God is temporal, he is free to do things. If he's not yeah. temporal, he doesn't do anything, even from his yeah. own perspective, because the minute he does something that he hadn't done the moment before, then he's right. temporal. Okay. Agreed. And so what you just described is Bill's view. Okay. He believes that God was not temporal prior to creation because nothing was uh -huh. happening. Okay, and um, I think one way to think about about it is time is what keeps everything from happening at once. Right. And the B theory, if you think of the book, everything is happening at once. Okay, simultaneously through all the pages of the book. Okay, but uh -huh. in in the A theory, you have temporal becoming, you have things happening. Okay, and uh, nothing was happening for God. Um, it's even a mistake to call it from eternity past, because eternity yeah. feels like a measure of time. There was right. just one moment, continuous yeah. moment, if you will. Even to say continuous is to suggest passage of time. But there was this moment, and then God decided to create, and his act of decision to create and act of creation were simultaneously the begin beginning of creation— or simultaneous with the beginning of creation, which was the first moment of temporal becoming. And right. then from that time, God has been participating in the passage of time, not that he is becoming anything, because he's not changing, but he is part of a world that is happening before his eyes. Yeah. Okay? So even from God's perspective, there what now is a past, because there was when he created— 
and there will be when Jesus will return, so there's a future, and there is now the moment in between these other moments. And then after Jesus returns, there will be a, a, a an unending series of moments that follow in what we call eternity, but it's not it's not going to be eternal set of moments. It'll just be, we'll just get older and older and older. We'll always have an age. So right. that, that's the way... That's the way I would characterize, uh, you know, Bill's view. Now, I think he's open to the idea that maybe there was relational things happening in the Trinity prior to, um, uh, yeah, prior to when he created. But um, that's just very speculative. He, he, I think he's committed to this idea that God was timeless until creation, and then, then entered into time, so to speak, met- metaphorically speaking, and participates in temporal becoming or activity. Uh, with us experiencing the passage of time as well ever since then. So that's Bill's view, and it's also my view. I was quite persuaded by that uh, God, Time, and Eternity tape that we sent to you so many years ago. Hey, thanks for the uh, call, Kevin, and uh, time to go here. Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven, friends. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye now. 